there's already a foundation upon which we may build because of your faithfulness as a people. He continues in verse 9, they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Anytime I read that passage, it sort of sends shivers down my spine. It raises questions about who the audience of 1 Thessalonians is. Is this a predominantly Jewish audience or a predominantly Gentile audience? And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. To no end in a dissertation defense over this very issue. Who made up the audience that was the church at Thessalonica? There are strong indications that the vast majority of the congregation were Gentile people. And the fact that Paul mentions here they're turning from idols to serve the living God would seem to strengthen the notion that these are people who are coming from a pagan background. Whether you're coming from a pagan background or a Jewish background, a more monotheistic background, the reality is, and this is what I, why I raise this question of Jews and Gentiles and who the audience is, I'm not sure that it matters whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or anything else for that matter. All of us in turning to the living God to serve him in fear must turn away from idols. Our idols in the Western world are far more sophisticated than the idols of the Eastern world where they're actual Buddhas and statues and things that are to embody spirits and various other things. But idolatry is the issue. In fact, I see from Genesis to Revelation, the problem with mankind is our infatuation with idols of various types and various sorts, whether it's the idol of self and satisfaction of lust and fleshly desires, it's the predominant idolatry in the Western world today, or actual idols, as is the case in the Eastern world. The reality is that in order to turn to Christ, we must turn away from those idols. And I'm convinced that we'll see more and more a movement toward actual idolatry, the kind of thing that we bear in mind when we think about idol worship as our culture drifts in a godless direction. These people turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is what Jesus does for us. He rescues us from the coming wrath. We, we use, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly, the language of I was saved or so-and-so was saved when talking about a person's conversion. But I'm not sure that we always understand what it is we're being saved from. In fact, I think most people believe that means we're being somehow saved from the devil. But the reality is, what that means is, we're being saved from God, for God. We're being saved from the wrath of God against us, for the glory of God. Jesus rescues us from the wrath that is to come, and that wrath comes from the God of heaven. Paul turns in chapter 2, and to some extent, even in chapter 3, to something of a defense of self. It's unclear to me whether Paul feels the need to defend himself or if this is more of a reflection 
on how he conducted himself among them. It seems more of the latter to me. Paul reminiscing about his time among them and hoping to set forth his experiences there as an example for them to pattern after as they go forth in ministry. But in any event, he describes his experiences there with them. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and we were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but rather God who examines our heart. Paul says, the crux of the matter for us is not to please you or to please anyone else, but to please God. This is ultimately where we must land when it comes to gospel ministry, to labor, to strive, to strain, to do the things which bring pleasure to God. You will eventually, if striving to serve God faithfully, you will eventually find yourself in a situation where you'll make a definite decision as to whether you're going to serve to please men or you're going to serve to please God. And we'd like to think in, in a sterile setting without the pressure that comes with those circumstances that we'd always make the right decision. But I'm telling you, although the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And there's a strong temptation and a, and a gravitational tendency to do the thing that would please man rather than the thing that would please God. And I'm telling you, in spite of the difficulty that can come with those decisions, it is always the best thing, regardless of the fallout, to do what brings pleasure to God, even if it means invoking the wrath of man. Paul says for us, while we served among you, our priority was to do what would bring pleasure to God. It's not often that we experience any real persecution, and much of what we assign to the category of persecution comes short of any real viable definition of persecution, at least as it was experienced in the life of the Apostle Paul. But I cannot imagine the temptation that he must have felt at times to simply compromise or to shrink back from the call of God on his life to alleviate this constant barrage of blows he experienced in ministry. Comes away from Philippi in Acts chapter 16. You remember what happened in Philippi? In Philippi, he's thrown in jail and, and he's beaten. And he's beaten as a violation of his civil rights. As an official Roman citizen, they have no right to beat the Apostle Paul without an official hearing. Now, he doesn't pull the citizenship card until later, which to me suggests a willingness on his part to forego certain rights for the advancement of the gospel. And it may say something about the absence of those same rights for those in his missionary party. I suspect that there are probably some in his mission band that did not enjoy the same level of rights because they did not have Roman citizenship rather than leaving them to themselves to suffer the beating that they would endure. Paul chose to go with them, only later pulling his citizenship card. 
He's beaten with rods, a beating that is noted by historians to have been so severe that it often left its victims bandy-legged, in the words of F.F. F. Bruce, unable to walk completely upright for the rest of their life for the scarring that would happen to their calves and hamstrings after this beating. And then he's thrown in prison before God delivers him miraculously by night. Rather than going home and healing from his injuries, he presses on, and by Acts chapter 17, he's in Thessalonica. And he does not arrive in Thessalonica to great pomp and circumstance. They weren't glad to see him there either. They invade the house of Jason, they run him out, and he goes on to Berea. And he's not received well there either. Although the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in in Thessalonica, they searched the scripture to see whether what Paul said was right or not. Those from Thessalonica showed up to give him problems there. Again and again and again, there is real distress in the life of the Apostle Paul for the ministry that God has called him to. And again and again, Paul makes the decision, my goal in life and ministry is going to be to bring pleasure to God and not to man. And as often as it is for us that those two come together in pursuit of bringing pleasure to God, shared values afford us the opportunity to do that. There will come times when these two are in direct conflict and it is always preferable for us to do what is right in the eyes of God more so than the eyes of man. Look to verse 5. We never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek to glory from people, either from you or from others, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles. Instead, we were gentle among you as nursing, uh, as nursing a mother nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. Your witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In short, Paul says, we we could have burdened you with the responsibility of providing for our needs, but we didn't. As a nursing mother nurtures her children, so we sought to nurture you and your young faith. We, we did our best, we made it our aim to set an example among you, an appropriate example among you, and to implore you likewise to walk worthy of the calling that God had placed on our life. This is the goal of every servant of God, to establish a good example and to be a model for those given un, under their care. Chapter 4, I want us to skip over chapter 3, where Paul sort of continues in this explanation of his movements and ministry and his heart for the church there. Chapter 3, just in short, Paul tells of his time in Athens and how he's sending Timothy to to get a report and how he receives a report from Timothy to hear of their well-being and how he was refreshed at that report. And then he comes to chapter 4 and some substance for the church. He speaks here of God's will for them. He says in verse 4, Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, rather. Finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you've received from us how you must walk and please God as you're doing, do so even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, you're doing a good job in these areas, but I want to press on this. Paul's been in Thessalonica. He knows where the weaknesses, where the temptations and the tendencies are. You're doing a good job here, but I want us to make sure that we maintain focus because this is an area, Paul says, where we can get off track. 
In verse 3, he explains precisely what it is that he intends. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God who also gives you his Holy Spirit. So many times people want to know about what God's will is, want to know what God wants me to do, what is the will of God. Here, here is one of a few instances in the New Testament where God's will is expressly stated. God's will for every believer is our sanctification that we would grow in grace and holiness, that we would strive to kill the sin in our life, that we would be grieved over the presence of sin in our life and every day seek to make repentance for the shortcomings that are evident in our life. We are all very much a work in progress. We would all have to admit such. But the goal of the Christian life is a Godward trajectory in life that with each day that passes, we are laboring and straining and striving to be more like our Savior, Jesus. The specific sin that the Apostle Paul identifies here in verses 4 and following is the sin of sexual immorality. The city of Thessalonica, in fact, so much of the Greco-Roman world was not unlike 21st century America where sexual sin rules the day. Sexual sin is, is a, a cancerous issue in our culture, and I hate to break it to you, but it is a cancerous sin in the church. Whether it would be more respectable sins like adultery and premarital sex or the more overt things as homosexuality and now gender confusion mixed together with those things, our culture and unfortunately the church is in so many ways influenced by the presence of sexual sin. Made all the more insidious by the way it attaches itself to the hearts, well, to the hearts of men and women alike, to the hearts of unwitting followers of Jesus, who by virtue of their mere efforts to love and be generous to those around them find themselves attached in such a way that they come to a place of compromise with regards to sexual sin. I, I, since the early days of my ministry, I found myself wrestling through these issues. People get attached and people say all kinds of things to provide justification for their positions on a variety of different issues from foolish things like God wants us to be happy and that's the rationale and justification for the decisions that I'm making to all, all sorts of slogans and mantras that have invented by the culture that at face value sound good and positive and uplifting and maybe even Christian in nature but the undertone there is satanic and ungodly and a clear break with the teaching of the Scripture. Paul diagnosed the city of Thessalonica and the placement of the church in Thessalonica. And he says, given the cultural context of the church, you had better be on guard against this cancerous, insidious sin of sexual immorality for the way it has the ability of getting its tentacles around you, suffocating and drawing you away from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And I'm telling you, listen to me tonight, 
This is a reality for us in 21st century America. This, more so than any other sin, has an ability to get its tentacles into the body of Christ, to smother, to suffocate, to infect, to divide, and ultimately to conquer if given its head. There must be a continual insistence on the standard of God's word when it comes to marriage and sexuality, and we must insist on upholding that standard come what may. There really can be no room for compromise here because compromising at this point, compromising with regards to this issue, marks a clear break from the clear teaching of the Bible. It marks the marginalization of the authority of God's word and will reap the whirlwind for any church that chooses to go that way, and it will reap the whirlwind for any individual that sees fit to make such compromises in their experience as well. When it comes to sexual sin, you had better be vigilant in being on guard against allowing that your heart would drift from the standard that God has clearly established in his word. Paul has diagnosed the church at Thessalonica's circumstance aptly, and we might note tonight that that diagnosis is suitable to our cultural context as well. He does have some positives to continue to celebrate. He doesn't say what he says with regards to sexual immorality because they seem to have things wrong. In fact, it's, it's goading them to continue in a positive direction. The same could be said about their love for one another in verse 9. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. To seek to lead, this is one of my favorite verses. If you want to know what it looks like to be a faithful brother, here it is. Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. This is, a, this is beautiful. This is a master class in what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Did you catch all that the Apostle Paul said? Like we get in our mind that being a faithful believer is to be like this celebrity Christian who's got a million followers on Twitter, and you see them, they're platformed everywhere, and they sort of have... Uh, you know, they've, they've got an entourage with them everywhere they go. But that is not what the Apostle Paul describes here. He says again, seek to lead a quiet life. The, the people who will be nearest the throne on that great day will not be the people that you read about in the headlines of Christianity today. The people that will be nearest the throne on that day will be grandmas and grandpas and neighbors and senior adults from local assemblies and country churches and backwoods places and far-off spots that you couldn't even dream of, let alone spell, who've been faithfully sharing the message of the gospel, leading a quiet yet simple life, working with their own hands, tending to their own needs, providing for those in their care. You'll, you'll never hear this side of heaven the names of those who will be nearest the throne, but I, I'm convinced that what the Apostle Paul describes in these few verses is what the Christian life is all about. To quietly go about the business of advancing the kingdom across the street and around the world, working with our hands, minding our own business, walking properly in the presence of outsiders, not being dependent upon those around us. Now in chapter 4, verse 13, 
In fact, chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5 and verse number 11, Paul takes up the theme that is probably what 1 Thessalonians, and for that matter, 2 Thessalonians, is best known for, the second coming of Jesus. And it really doesn't deal with, at least in 1 Thessalonians, the chronology or the order of these events, which tend to be the kind of things that we're most drawn to when talking about the second coming of Christ. But it does make clear for us some essentials that need to be understood with regards to the coming of Christ. Now, I want you to note here that not only does this passage not deal with the order of events or chronology of events with regards to the coming of Christ, it is not concerned with that, nor does there seem to be an overwhelming sense of concern for such matters in the New Testament. There is an, some observations made as to how this unfolds, but unlike us, in our Western experience where we like to systematize and order things so that we can understand them nice and neat in their categories and boxes, the point is that Jesus is coming again. And somehow, some way, along the way, in our efforts at systematizing and understanding everything in its neat little box, we've lost touch with the reality that Jesus is coming again. And that message in 1 Thessalonians and everywhere else as far as I can discern is intended by the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers under the inspiration of God's Spirit to function as an encouragement to the church. Now I'll show you that in the text. Look down to verse 18 of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, after having described something of the coming of Christ, encourage one another with this word, with these words rather. Now look to chapter 5 and verse 11 at the end of a second discussion of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. The function of our reflections on the promise of Jesus' return is to bring encouragement to our heart to help us in our walk. I, I can remember you know, when, when Brandy and I first married, you know, there was no satellite in the house, and I suppose we were buttons for punishment on this particular night. We, we watched a VHS copy of one of the early Left Behind movies. Have y'all seen those? Which is like painful, right? The, you know, it's bad. It's bad. Kirk Cameron loves Jesus, but he's a terrible actor. And, and so we sat, we suffered through that, right? And, and I remember my wife being so troubled by that and what was depicted there. And I understand this was a long time ago, and I couldn't spell eschatology, let alone understand it. But I, I remember seeing her in tears, and not tears of joy, as we reflected on the second coming of Christ, but tears of concern at what that would look like for us or our potential family one day. What will that be like? And, and I think for the first time, I, I, I began to reflect on what, what the promise of Christ's coming is supposed to do in our heart, and what it is to do was the opposite of what my wife was experiencing on the back end of, of that horrible video. When we think of the coming of Christ, our thoughts ought to be directed at the glory of the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great power on that day. 
Like, I, like, you know, the first thing that comes to our mind should not be jet planes and locusts or the new world order or microchips and Apple phones or even vaccines in recent months. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming on the clouds to rectify every injustice that has ever unfolded on God's green earth and to vindicate the, the, the every drop of blood ever shed in the name of Jesus. That's what we ought to think about. A day when all things are made right. You understand that's what the second coming of Christ should mean for us. When you watch the 24-hour news cycle and this constant barrage of courtroom footage and you cannot find justice, your heart should churn and turn and burn for the second coming of Jesus when everything is finally made right. When tragedy visits you and your family and it just doesn't feel fair, your heart should turn and burn and churn for the second coming of Jesus when all things will be made right. That's what the second coming of Christ is about. So in verse 13, here's what the Apostle Paul says. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep so that you'll not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Other translations uh, would say we don't want you to be ignorant which is really probably a fair translation, maybe even a fairer translation of this verse, but it sounds hard. Paul says, right now you're ignorant. And he doesn't mean that in a bad way, he just means you don't know. You've misunderstood and misrepresented to some extent what the second coming is all about. And the city of Thessalonica was given to that. Paul comes back in 2 Thessalonians and has to further address some of the issues related to the second coming that are taken up here in 1 Thessalonians, there seem to have been ongoing issues. One of the problems that we'll see next week, Lord willing, in 2 Thessalonians is that they really believe Jesus is coming soon, so they quit work. They just said, we're just going to hang out and look to the sky and wait on Jesus to come, which is a nice thought, and I'm glad for the confidence, but that's not what Christ has called us to do in the interim, Right. As long as we are here, we are to do, as Paul instructed in those verses moments ago, seek to lead a quiet life, work with our own hands, provide for the needs of those in our care, don't be dependent on those around you, seek to advance the kingdom. That's what we're to do in the interim. He wants to inform them of the second coming of Christ so that they have this source, this constant source of encouragement in their hearts. Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive and at, alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the second coming of Christ is initiated by the sounding of this great trumpet and the appearance of Christ in the sky with the saints of old who have died before us. There's no advantage for, for those of us who are still alive. That seems to have been a concern for them. Are we missing out on something if we're, if we're dead when Christ returns, does that mean we've missed somehow something in our salvation experience? And Paul says, no, there's no advantage there. At the second coming of Christ, Christ brings with him the saints who have deceased in Christ. 
Their physical bodies are resurrected from the grave. That physical body resurrected is joined together with their spiritual body already in the presence of Christ. And in that existence, they are now in a glorified body in which they will exist for an eternity. That's sort of the progress or the progression that the Apostle Paul is describing here in our passage. I have never been one that, that, that bought into this idea of Jesus coming in a secret way again. I don't think there's going to be this experience whereby we wake up or look around and certain people are missing and somehow we've missed out on Jesus returning this second time. It seems apparent to me that when Jesus comes again, the whole world is going to know about it. They're going to know about it because the trumpet of God will sound. They're going to know about it because Christ comes not only in salvation for those who are in Christ, but in judgment against the world that remains. Those events seem to unfold simultaneously as I understand the teaching of the New Testament. In chapter 5, Paul continues this discussion about the last day, taking up the topic of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a sort of multifaceted phrase used in both the Old and the New Testaments. The day of the Lord can be any significant apocalyptic event in the Bible. But there's a flexibility about the day of the Lord that allows that language to be used to speak of a, a, an event that happens in history that has an apocalyptic nature, while at the same time communicating truth about the day of the Lord, the last day of the Lord, that great apocalyptic event when Jesus comes to cleanse and to claim his church and to bring judgment against the world that remains. Look to chapter 5 and verse number 1. Was that... That was probably not a clear statement. What, what I want you to see and understand is that there are many apocalypses in the Bible. There is one great apocalyptic event to happen in the last day. What, for instance, the flood account is an apocalyptic event. And there's such similarity between the flood event and the last days that Jesus and others will consistently point to the flood, it will be as in the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah. That phrase is used again and again and again in describing what the coming of Christ will be on the last day. There, there are other events that happen in the Old Testament that are framed in apocalyptic imagery and contribute to our understanding of what the last day will be. I'll give you one that people seldom think of. When the children of Israel march around the city of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down, that, that has an apocalyptic tone and certain framework around it so that the imagery of the Jericho uh, episode in, in Joshua is actually picked up and used again in the book of Revelation. And seeing that connection provides insight into what's unfolding both in Revelation and in the book of Judges. So there are times in the Old Testament when the day of the Lord language is used, and it's not a direct reference to the day of the Lord. It's a reference to something that's going to happen in the near future of Israel's history, but may contribute to our ability to Testament. Verse 1 of chapter 5. About the times and seasons, brothers, you don't need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. In other words, it will come unexpectedly. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in the dark, for this, day to for this day to overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of the day. For we don't belong to the night or the darkness, so then we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put on the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. Paul says Jesus is coming as a thief in the night at an hour that is not expected. I hope at this point, 50 or so years and a long line of prognostications about the second coming of Christ and the date and the time and the hour that we're at home with the idea that we don't know the day or the hour. And that's the point that Jesus makes and Paul makes when he says he will come as a thief in the night. And I hope that you've observed, even if you're a new believer, you've probably been exposed to these guesses at when Christ was coming. They've existed around us in the culture and they always create a lot of fanfare and a following and people are looking into things and asking questions and it creates intrigue and lots of curiosity even for those who are not a part of the church. I hope you've identified the connection that always seems to exist between speculation about when Jesus will return and getting into your pocketbook. I hope hope that you've been able to draw that connection because it's always there. It's a common denominator in each of these efforts. It's saying, Jesus come back right on this date or within this window of time, it's going to happen. You can tell by sun, moon, stars, all these things. They always have a way of getting into your bank account before it's all over with. Jesus said, I'm going to come at an hour that you do not know. In fact, the only thing that Jesus ever owns a lack of awareness for, he says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus knows the very hairs of our head. He's the creator of all the universe. The only thing that the Son, as the second person of the Trinity, ever acknowledges that he himself does not know is the hour and time at which the Father will look to the Son and say, Son, go and get your bride. Now, I'll guarantee you that if Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour, your televangelist friend does not either. And so Paul says we are to live as though he could come any moment in the twinkling of an eye as a thief in the night. In fact, he says when they say peace and security, when it's when it's, when it's the wrong time, when they say, no, nah, it couldn't be now, that's, that's the time. And, and what I'd point you to is, if you look at what Jesus says about his coming in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 19, all of the criteria that Jesus says must be met for his return have long since been met. In other words, there's nothing that's left to be done. Jesus is not hemmed up by some stipulations that have been placed on the second coming of Christ as though he cannot come until certain events unfold. I see this from time to time. Fundraising so that we can build a structure in Jerusalem that will position us such that Jesus can now return again. Don't get swept into those kinds of things. Those are hucksters. The Bible never suggests that Jesus is somehow restricted by some divine stipulation until A, B, and C happen. He He can't come again. All of the criteria for the return of Christ have been met in perfection, and they have been met for some time. I I don't think it becomes us to get swept up in these kinds of speculations. I think we're best to people when constantly looking toward the eastern sky for the return of our Savior without being dragged into the kind of mindless speculation that seems to be so predominant in our culture. 
This has always, always, always been a feature of American Christianity. We can look anxiously for the return of, of Christ without losing credibility in our witness to those around us by speculating to no end about events as they unfold. Like I see things sometimes and I go, you got to know that if you do that, it's going to make people think that you're like playing into this antichrist thing, right? I see, th- I see governments, I see, I see social media corporations doing things and I'm know that this understanding exists in the culture. Are you, are you trying to pretend to be Satan? You know, I had that thought. But it's always been that way, right? I tell you the generation I think most about, I think if I had been alive in the greatest generation, I would have been firmly convinced that Jesus is coming any minute. You got, you got Hitler over there, right? Who's taken over the world. You got six million Jews carted off to concentration camps. You've got the world in a worldwide war. I mean, there's, there's nobody that's not a part of this. I, you, could, you could have convinced me that this was not it. It's all about to go down. Christ is coming. But in God's patience, in his long-suffering toward mankind, he has determined that there are sheep not yet of his fold. And I thank God for that. As anxiously as I anticipate the return of Christ when all things are made right, I am grateful for his patience and his long-suffering. It's an encouragement to me. It makes me want to go and to shout from the rooftop, Christ is coming. Make right with Christ. Repent and believe on the gospel. It ought to be an encouragement to us to invade every corner of creation with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's when Christ says he'll come again, when the world has been permeated with the preaching of the gospel. So let us go and hasten his coming and our faithfulness to share the message of what Christ has done for us, that great saving work on the cross and an empty garden grave that is the guarantee of our resurrection in him I I hope that in the days ahead as you think about the promise that Christ is coming and that he is coming soon it doesn't create fear or trepidation in your heart but an anxiousness to see him in the fullness of his glory to be in his presence and to experience that all things have been made right by the judge who always does what is right Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for this opportunity to reflect on the teaching of your word, to think about the promise of Christ's return. It is such a good thing to reflect on the reality that there is coming a day when all that is wrong with the world will finally be made right. I pray that you would help us to look toward that day, to mind our own business, to work with our hands, and to advance the kingdom across the street and around the world. I pray that you have nourished our soul through the reading and study of your word, that our remembrances of these truths would help us in what remains of this week of service and even into the rest of our lives, God. Help us to remember the promise of your return, that you've not forgotten or left us behind, God, but that there's coming a day when you return for us in full force and power, lion and lamb, savior, sanctifier, judge of all the earth. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. 
and all that you've promised you will do. May Jesus receive the honor. In Christ's name, amen.